Hi, I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and this is a bonus edition of the Dying to Ask podcast. I have a couple of colleagues who have been working on a special corporate project for Hearst Television over the last year, producer Dave Manicheri and photojournalist Victor Nieto. The project is a documentary, and it's about the bombing of the Harvey's Casino in South Lake Tahoe back in 1980. This is a wild and true story of a guy that had zero education and experience in bomb building, who somehow, pre-internet, managed to build the most complex bomb of its time and literally wheeled it into a casino and then demanded a ransom for it. Spoiler alert, it went off. Now, the good news here is that nobody was hurt, no one died. No one, which is incredible considering what happened. So now more than 40 years later, Dave and Victor are telling you the story of what happened over the course of just a couple of days in this spectacularly beautiful spot of South Lake Tahoe. And they have interviews with people who have never talked publicly about what happened before. If you like crime capers, if you like dumb crook stories, you will love this documentary. I've seen it and it is just outstanding. It's so entertaining. And if I didn't have a connection to the area, I still would find it utterly fascinating that it actually happened. So on the surface, I was thinking, you know what, I'm just gonna offer this up as an interesting backstory in the medium of a podcast because you can talk longer. But then as the more I thought about it, I realized that Dave Manicheri is a perfect example of what we talk about on the Dying to Ask podcast. Because Dave is a great example of reinvention, motivation. How do you reinvent yourself after doing your job, any job, over a long stretch of time? So for Dave, it has been taking on a massive challenge of doing something that on the surface is super familiar. It's career adjacent to what he's been doing for decades, but at the same time, it's completely different. And for a lot of us, myself included, that is the key to staying fresh in a job that you really like, but that you need to change every once in a while. So find a challenge and use a different part of your brain with an assist from the part that you use daily. Does that make sense? Is it more work? Yep. Is it refreshing? Yes. Is it equal parts energizing and exhausting? Yes, yes. A little bit about Dave. So Dave, capital J journalist old school journalist, new school journalist. He's just a great journalist. Long history of investigative journalism. And he's the guy in the newsroom, and every office has got a person like this, that if you've got something super complex that you're trying to break down into more digestible parts and then explain to someone else, he's the, do you get this guy? Like you can go up to him, show him something. Do you get this, Dave? He'll sit, think, usually he gets it and then can spit it back at you in a way that you can understand it too. He's a total storyteller. Started in radio. Video, however, became his life. And his late wife used to tell him, you have too many stories you want to tell, which of course sounds familiar to me. Dave has been telling those stories in a variety of ways for a long time. He also is a writer. He has written for Smithsonian's Air and Space Magazine, on secret military tests in the 1950s. He has written for a parenting blog called The Dad Website. He has won Emmys and Murrows and Associated Press Awards. And his previous documentary, Easy Money, exposed incredible fraud at the California Employment Development Department during the pandemic. I'm not done. Dave is also a musician. He's very right brain, left brain. He has played with and for some really big names. And he even wrote and recorded a theme song for his documentary, which I'm going to tell you, 
has risen the bar for the rest of us. I don't have a musical bone in my body. <laughs> That's not happening on any project I work on, but I do know a guy. Dave is also, on the personal side, a single father of four. As I mentioned, he lost his wife years ago. He is an incredible human being, and as I mentioned earlier, just a total master of reinvention and of simply getting the job done. On this Dying to Ask podcast, how to know if you're getting a little stale in your career, how to then reinvent yourself where you work now instead of moving on right away. The impact a professional reinvention can have on your personal mindset. So here's the plan. I've got a great conversation with Dave about how he pivoted to creating documentaries. Then I'm going to take you behind the scenes of Bringing Down the House. And this is a production that KCRA has done in partnership with Very Local, which is our streaming channel, all of us under the umbrella of Hearst Television. First, let's listen to the trailer for Bringing Down the House. We demand $3 million. As minutes tick on, the possibility of an explosion increases. He was extorting the casino. Authorities had discovered a bomb with the explosive force of 1,100 pounds of TNT in a resort hotel. I had never seen a bomb anywhere near that large. A thousand pounds of dynamite. That gets your attention. You couldn't disarm it. I mean, everybody's looking around going, you gotta be kidding. Probably the most sophisticated explosive device made ever in the world. At that time, I was still living at home. My dad was able to build a bomb with no formal education. They go, nobody's gonna believe this. Have you ever wondered how did they do that? I do all the time. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and Dying to Ask is the podcast that gets me off a TV news set and into candid conversations with authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and influencers I have been dying to talk to. Soak up the motivation that comes from learning how other people live their lives, how they take an idea or a goal, they follow through, and they pull it off. And maybe along the way, I'll get some answers to questions you've been dying to ask. Hi, Dave. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, um, you're on because I just did a little favor for you. So you're going to do a little favor for me. You know, it works that way. Quid it pro does. Quo, <laughs> quo, right? No, this is kind of fun. Um, so you and I are colleagues at KCRA, mm -hmm. and for the last year, um, you have been working on this project that's like super, super cool. And the result of it is this documentary, which is now available on Very Local, our streaming platform with Hearst Television that people can check out. And this story is so good, you just could not make this one up. Not if I tried. No, 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 no. no. It's, it, 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 it is one of the craziest stories I've ever covered in my career. I mean, and I've covered some crazy stuff, but this is, this is like, it just, it key, it, the more you dig into it, the better it gets. But what's cool about this is, to me, and we're going to play after we get done with this little part here. We're going to play like an extended interview with you about the, the documentary itself. What's interesting to me about this project and you is that you had never done anything quite like this before because you've worked as an investigative journalist for your whole career. True. Yeah, no, this is, there were a lot of firsts for this. I mean, yeah, I, I think I was telling you before we rolled, 
Uh, you know, I started at KCRA about 12 years ago. If you'd walked up to me 12 years ago and said, you're going to be doing something like this, or even the last few years of work that I had done, I'd have said you were nuts. Um, <laughs> because? You know, when I started here, I, I came over to KCRA. My wife had passed away. I was, uh, I needed a new job that would allow me to be a single dad to, to four kids who I raised on my own. Um, and so it was, you know, I came here as a news person. You know, it's, it's as an investigative producer and, and a field producer. So we did a lot of things, don't get me wrong, amazing things working for KCRA. But getting the opportunity to do these sort of documentaries, I just kind of stumbled into it. I mean, our, our, the first production we did a couple years ago was called Easy Money on the Fraud at the Employment Development Department. Um, and I pitched that as this sort of alternative to the news coverage because nobody was talking about it. And I was like, they're not watching the news stories. There's too many of them. It's, they've gone deaf to it. We have to do something different. And to KCRA's credit, they were like, okay, go, do it. And they let us. And so then the next project came up and they're like, we want to do this. We're going to get some money and some help from Hearst's streaming platform, Very Local. What do you want to do? And I went, I want to do the story of the bombing of the Harvest <laughs> Casino. <laughs> Something totally different than the EDD. It thing. was totally different. And then, you know, there, there was a degree of not knowing what we didn't know. Um, you know, we had the, the archive footage of the thing exploding, which is amazing. It's incredible. Um, but, you know, it, we didn't know until after we got into doing the interviews how much more of this story there was and how little video we had yeah. of all of the rest of this story. And so. that's what, and this is why I think this is interesting to talk about on the Dying Dust podcast because, and I'm sure you're a faithful listener to the podcast, I, but I we am. talk a lot about the pivots that people make in their life that maybe are adjacent to the life they've been leaving, leading, but they draw on the experience they have in one area to go in a completely different area. And that to me is what you have done in taking on this documentary role. So I'm curious to know, sinking into a big project like this, what has it done for you personally? I know what it's done for you professionally. What has it done for you personally? Oh, it's revitalized the way I think about my career and the way I think about doing things. It really has. Um, you know, it, it's easy to feel kind of stagnant in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, I love the work that I do. There are laws on the books because of our work at KCRA. Um, and we do important work. And I still do that work. Um, in the middle of doing this project, I was still doing investigative stories for KCRA. But it was also, there were, there, there's a degree of getting sort of beat down and tired, and the pandemic was really tough. I mean, you know, I was reporting some, I was doing investigative work some. So getting to do something like this, which is sort of in your wheelhouse, but not in your wheelhouse at the same time, you know, we're problem solvers in news. It's sort of one of those things. It's like, okay, this is where we're at. We need to do this. And, and so there was never a degree of, we can't do this. It was just like, how do we do this? Um, but to be able to tell such a crazy story in a completely different manner, um, that, 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 that was fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And then maybe that's kind of like the key to, rather than blowing up your life, to bring it back to bringing down the house, um, rather than blowing up your life, maybe you do something that's familiar but different when you're looking to kind of re-energize at a point in your career. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was exhausting. Um, 
we were we were shooting a lot. Um, we we built a copy of the bomb. I, know. I mean. Yeah, Dave, you built a bomb we at built, KCRA. We I asked you one day, I passed you in the hall, what are you doing? I'm building a bomb today. I was so busy, I'm like, good, good luck. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> one of my favorite moments. <laughs> You're probably not the last. <laughs> <laughs> at least not the last to think about it. Um, one of my favorite moments actually, believe it or not, involved you, and it was, we were shooting a reenactment, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit, but we were shooting a reenactment, and I was walking out toward the employee lot where we had a nondescript white van, and I was carrying a shovel <laughs> and garbage bags, and I think a set of chains. Yeah, yeah. And you stopped dead in your tracks, and you went, well, that's not sketchy looking or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then just kept walking. <laughs> and I was like, well, as your colleague who sits across the room, I've totally enjoyed looking over and seeing you like so entrenched in it. And I find it motivating to see how excited and jazzed you and your partner, Victor, have gotten working on this. Um, because I think it motivates people around you, too. So um, one bit of advice you might have for people who maybe do feel a little stagnant in their careers and are just looking to shake things up, what would you say? Don't be afraid to 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 pitch it, I guess, to use our newsroom term. I, you know, it. I think a lot of people are going, well, I'd love to do more of X, Y, or Z. And then they just kind of sit and stew about it. And, you know, I finally just was like, well, the worst they can say is no, right? I mean, so you go in and say, <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. I didn't think I was going to walk in and say, I want to do an hour long documentary on the bombing of the Harvey's Casino and have them say, oh, yes, you can do that. And by the way, you can spend an entire year working on mostly that and then shooting reenactments, building a copy of the bomb, and buying a whole bunch of props on eBay. But we did, but and it did. was a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, so what's coming up next is an extended conversation with Dave about the project and about all the crazy stuff that he and Victor had to do to tell this story. Um, your next project, and we're not gonna give it away, is with me. It is with and me. And it's good. It's, it's good. really good. We're taking you in a 180, though. It's nothing like this. No, this is, this is, we, we made the joke. If you were looking at like Steven Soderbergh films, <laughs> it's not really the Oceans movies. It's mm. more the informant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I could, sort I could of see the that. guy who's smart enough to, to get away with one thing, but not everything else. And, yeah. and so that's, that's, that's kind of what this is. The next project is far more serious in tone, very important and just as fun to tell. Yeah. Um, a complete 180. This it's was a good, it's good, and we'll get to that because we got we got a lot of work with that one. Yeah. But in the meantime, I hope everybody enjoys this discussion of bringing down the house. What is your name, and what was your job with this documentary? My name is Dave Manocherry, and I am the producer and co-director of Bringing Down the House. Can I just say, you couldn't make this thing up? Oh no, if I, if I tried to write a fiction script on this thing, I don't think anybody would believe it. It is, it is insane. Give us the gist of what happened. So in the really dark early morning hours of August of 1980, two guys wheeled a contraption into the Harvey's Casino, which is just across the state line from California in Nevada. And wheel it inside, the mastermind of the whole plan shows up inside, they take the cover off the thing and it's a bomb with a thousand pounds of dynamite in it and they put an extortion letter there and they're asking for $3 million, which you would think would be the end of it, but 
instead this entire like comedy of errors and massive investigation goes around the fact that these guys put a bomb in a casino it's it's just the one of the craziest stories i have ever gone through in my entire career this wasn't like fake bomb this was legit bomb from people who had no experience doing any of this until they actually pulled this off oh that's right yeah no not no college education probably mostly high school i don't think that the bomber had actually even graduated high school with no formal education puts this bomb what they call the most complicated bomb ever made together and wheel it into a casino and and it was designed to explode this thing had eight ways that it could go off if they did anything wrong with it and eventually it did <clears throat> eventually it did in one of the most spectacular explosions i have ever seen in my life so a ransom note very elaborate instructions <laughs> on how to pay it a huge bomb that the world's best bomb detectives couldn't disarm. How could this possibly happen? It was 1980. Uh, you, have to, you have to think about State Line Nevada and, and even Vegas were, it was still kind of the Wild West. So like we go to concerts now and you have to have a clear bag and, and there are metal detectors. There was none of that in 1980. It, these guys wheeled up to the front door and the security guard held the door open and helped them get on the elevator with the bomb. And so it was kind of this freewheeling, you know, fun-loving sort of mentality and nobody really thought about anything like this ever happening. Afterwards, it all changed. But, but up to this point, yeah, it, you, you'd think you couldn't get away with it, but, but they did. How is it that there hasn't been some big Hollywood movie done about this at this point? It's a good question. I, 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 my theory is because nobody was killed and nobody was injured, which is amazing. I mean, it's an, a thousand pound bomb that... <coughs> One moment. <laughs> One moment while the door closes. <laughs> you can probably just close that door, Victor. I thought it was the garage door. It just hooked around that pole. Oh. <laughs> but it should just be hanging on that pole. Okay. <laughs> And they did use a Boy Scout now. Um, okay, so we just, we already talked about how this thing has, hadn't been made yet. Um, oh, it was okay. What, why did, why had nobody heard about this before? Was yeah, did you, I can't, I'm not, can't remember. Did you finish answering that? I don't think I finished answering that. Okay. Again. So <clears throat> my theory on this is it's, it's mainly because nobody got hurt or killed, which is amazing because the thousand pound bomb just went off and nobody was hurt and nobody was killed. And, and it's a good thing, but I think it's also because of that, there's no memorialization. You go to state line today, there's nothing that indicates there was ever a bomb there. And I think it's just one of those things that they brushed it off and moved on. 
But at the time, I mean, this all happens over the course of a couple of days. And this was a big story. And because it was a little betting town, people took advantage. People were placing bets on, is this thing going to go off? They were selling t-shirts. They came up with a signature drink. I mean, this was something that just completely monopolized coverage. Oh, 100%. And, and yeah, the, the people went outside. There, there's archive footage of like the waitresses walking out with platters of scotch and like handing it out to people on, on the street. And they're taking bets. There was like a pool on when the bomb was going to go off. It's just, it's part of that like freewheeling, like 1980s before everything got secure kind of mentality. They're like, well, if you're going to, since we can't bet on the roulette wheel, let's bet on when the bomb's going to go off. And they did. What surprised you the most as you started researching, you know, who was involved and who were the characters and who you could get in touch with? I mean, the whole thing was full of surprises. I mean, uh, the really the most surprising thing was like who the, the bomber was at the end of the day. I mean, it was this guy that nobody suspected, nobody would have thought about. Um, nowhere near Lake Tahoe. I, I mean, in the Central Valley of California. And, and, and it really is like his story of, of, the guy was a millionaire and he blew it all at the blackjack tables, but it was nobody else's fault but Harvey's. It wasn't his, you know, even though he was betting $100,000 a hand on blackjack, you know, and just to, to see how, he was smart enough to build a bomb, but not organized enough to, to pull off the extortion plot. That was really the craziest thing. In this and world. that's why he did it, was because he'd lost a lot of money gambling. A lot of, a lot of money. He, he had a landscape business that made millions of dollars a year in the 1980s. It was a ton of money. And then sold that, bought a restaurant, lost a lot of money, burned the restaurant to the ground. <laughs> Uh, took the insurance money and lost all that at Harvey's and then decided that he was going to extort the casino for $3 million. But this guy who had no experience, no education doing this, built what your experts described as, at the time, probably the most sophisticated device made. It was. It still is. I mean, it's... You know, the, the bomb techs that we talked to said, you know, if there was two detonating circuits in there, they could probably take it out without any problem whatsoever. Eight. They're like, you got to take all eight of them out at the same time. And it's, it, it's really almost a statistical impossibility to stop all of those circuits from firing before the electricity gets to the dynamite. You had to track down all these people who were involved in the case who were on the scene when all of this happened. One of the people that you got to talk to is a guy named Kirk Ledbetter, and he did an exclusive interview with you. He's, the grand, he's Harvey's grandson, and he has never talked publicly about this before. Why did he do it now? We asked him that, not on camera, but we asked him, and he said, you know, enough time had passed. And his wife, who was, who was a big part of his life, you know, basically said, you need to do this. It's cathartic for you to do this. Get it out and be done. Uh, nobody in the immediate family of Harvey Gross's family had ever talked about it. In-laws had talked about it before, but, but Kirk and his father and, and the other siblings had never talked about it. And so he... He just decided it was time. It had been 40 plus years, so fine. You know, this seems like the right opportunity and it seemed like the right people to talk to. So he sat down and he did a very long interview with us and was very honest about everything. It was, it was I think you could tell that it was emotional for him, but it was good to finally just sort of put it out there into the universe and, and sort of be done with it. 
and, and it is interesting to hear him reflect on the fact that you know nobody was killed, nobody was injured, which is amazing. What did suffer, though, was the local economy around there. I mean, a lot of people lost jobs when this happened. Yeah, the unemployment rate actually did spike. I mean, and because it's like 1,200 people. Went, and, you know, if you look at Sacramento, 1,200 people is still a lot. But you look at South Lake Tahoe and State Line, 1,200 people is a large percentage of the population up there. And then you also had at least a week where a large number of those casinos were shut down. Most of these people didn't make any money at that point. So yeah, it affected the local economy as much as it did everything else. So it was really important for them to try and get open as quickly as they could. Jim Burgess, the uh, bomber's son, speaks. And as the documentary goes on, it it's kind of blows your mind to realize how close he was to this the entire time, but also to see like where he's ended up today. What was it like talking to him about what his dad did? It was interesting because, you know, it'd be easy to talk to this guy who was involved, don't get me wrong, and he doesn't dispute that at all. But when you talk to him, it's almost, I mean, I hate to use the phrase, but it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, this is a guy who grew up in a household where he was beaten on a regular basis. His, there were claims that his dad abused, if not killed, his mother. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot that went on there. And then to roll over on your father in the middle of the investigation, that, that, that takes a lot of guts. So, you know, it obviously affected him pretty heavily. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting things talking to him that, that I thought was really interesting is he brought up that, you know, his father had always been sort of an abusive character. And then after getting arrested and then tried and then rolling over on his dad, in the federal court, he gives a lot of credit to the FBI agents and the federal prosecutors who were men of their word and said, you testify, you will not be charged. You, you will plead out and you will just do time served. You will still have it on your record, but you're not going to go to prison. And they were good to their word. And so Jim, at least, of the family just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that to heart and has tried to live that way ever since. And Seems like that's what he's done. He's got a successful business. It's weird to see how somebody who could have had this one event completely color his whole life has really succeeded because of it. You had access to KCRA archival footage from 1980 and you know had an opportunity to speak with at least one of the reporters, Al Scott, who was involved on the scene. Um, but, but a lot of the things to tell this story, you had to go down and track down. I mean, you had to basically go back to the 80s. <laughs> And you have a lot of that stuff behind you to source things to do reenactments. How much fun or how challenging was that? Oh, it was fun. Don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, it's one of those things my, my co-director, Victor Nieto, and I had to make up a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of this stuff doesn't exist anymore. I mean, find a payphone today. You can't find a payphone. So, you know, Victor found a phone booth, but there was no phone in it. We had to buy a phone, a payphone, <laughs> that, that payphone. And we had to haul it up to Colfax, which is about a, a little over an hour away, and put it in that booth and shoot those reenactments. It was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. And I think neither of us had quite realized just how much work there was. We did go down the archives, and there's a ton of archive footage from the day and some of the investigation. But there was so much of this story that there's no visuals for. We had to make it all up. And the, the really unexpected thing was, you know, 10 seconds of video, 10 seconds of those reenactments, that's four to five maybe hours of work at minimum because you've got to complete, you got to put a set together, you've got to get all the stuff set up, set up all your gear, then you shoot 
for maybe a half hour and then you have to take all that stuff apart and take it away again. So it was a lot of fun, but I mean, by the end of last year, Victor and I were both just exhausted <laughs> because that's a lot of work. You don't realize how much, I think if you don't know what you don't know, and we didn't know how much work it was gonna be, but we had a blast doing it all. And how long was the project? How long? How long, yeah. How long did you guys work on this? <sighs> a little over a year, yeah. Uh, the, from, from pitching it to all the way through, it's probably a good year it took us to put it all together. And a lot of that was setting up and shooting our reenactments. Yeah, okay. Um, what do you think is the big takeaway for people who watch this? Yeah, this is still relevant. I, I mean, I think so many people don't know about this event, but it's still relevant. And we kind of end the documentary that way with what you and I may know about it or you and I may not, but law enforcement does. They still learn from this. And there are events that have happened since then, bombings, the, the, the Pan Am flight over Lockerbie, Scotland that blew up, the first World Trade Center bombing, the Oklahoma City bombing, all of the things that these law enforcement guys figured out how to do at Harvey's were refined and then used at these later bombings. So they still use all these techniques and really, no pun intended, ground zero for them is Harvey's. What struck me is these days, if you wanted to build a bomb, you could probably pick out, take out your phone and try to look something up. If you wanted to go in and try to defuse a bomb, you would send a little robot in. Back then, the bomb maker figured it out on his own, stole the stuff he needed on his own. The people who were sent in to try to defuse it also had to go in and were so hands-on with this. Yeah, we interviewed the Douglas, one of the Douglas County, Nevada bomb techs, Danny Daniel. And Danny was probably in there with that bomb more than anybody else. And when we, we interviewed current day bomb techs and they basically were like, these guys are the heroes. They are gutsy. They're like, this, this is a guy. And, and Danny even said he got some flack for not wearing the like Hurt Locker suit. And he was like, it's the height of summer and I'm in a room <laughs> with a thousand pounds of dynamite in a suit like this because there was no way I was going to wear that because that thing went off. That suit was not going to do anything but preserve my body after it blew up because it's so he's like, so they went in and they did all this on their own. Yeah, they'd use a robot today. A hundred percent. And, and these guys were in there. Uh, J.D. Nelson with Alameda County Bomb Squad says, even to this day, when you have to go to an event like that, you get a, <laughs> you get a 10%, I think it was bump in pay for the time period you're dealing with the bombing. And he goes, these guys more than earned their 10%. Very local shares stories of local communities. What mm. would you say is the long lasting impact that the bombing had on Stateline Nevada? It changed everything, not just in state line, but also across really the, not just the gaming industry, but everything else. Security suddenly became paramount, uh, even the week afterwards. Um, and I think that was the big change. If you go to state line today, there's no indication this bomb ever went off. I mean, in less than a year, they rebuilt the casino and the hotel and everything. But all the security, all of those cameras that you don't see in the, in the hotels and in the, in the casinos, and all of the people watching you, that's all as a result of Harvey. So it really made that sort of an impact on that whole industry, a lot of industries. When you went through the archives from the KCRA newsroom of that day, what were the big takeaways you got watching these reporters and, and even the way they were taking 
doing their job. Because like we said, this only happened over a course of a couple of days, but the coverage back then, it was incredibly compelling for people. It was, you know, what was interesting, and, and I don't think that we would do it any differently today in terms of the people that were sent up. But what was interesting is just like technologically how they, they didn't have the technology we do today. Today we'd take a, a, you know, what we call a backpack up and they could go live from up there. They couldn't go live from up there. So they jerry-rigged stuff and flew a chopper two miles up and beamed a signal, like bounced it all over the place. I mean, those were kind of the things that they did. But what was interesting was watching that archive footage and seeing how a, a lot of what they did is kind of what we go through today. It's like, you know, it's really compelling to watch it in, in a documentary and see how it all play out. But you also, when you talk to these reporter, the reporter and some of the photographers who were around, it's a lot of just hurry up and wait. You're standing around waiting and then all of a sudden, you know, the whole side of the building explodes. It's like, that's a lot of our job, really. It's like, hurry up and wait and then something major happens and you have an adrenaline rush for a little bit of time and then it's sit around and wait again. So, Talk a little bit about how people can see this. They can see this on Very Local, which is a streaming platform that you can download or you can get it through Amazon Fire or Roku, but it is free. So you can watch this for free on Very Local. Uh, and you will see the full hour documentary of how the Harvey's bombing played out.